Our scripture this morning is Mark 13, 24 through 37. Mark 13, 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. For what I say, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. If I was you, I'd be a little bit concerned when there are that many warnings about staying awake for what might be coming ahead. That really did not have my uh, message in mind, but it is perhaps very appropriate, as uh, some will find out. I'm going to take just a moment to say thank you to people that help um, in the ways that they do with our service. That really struck me this morning, uh, because there are many wonderful blessings about being the one who is able to share God's word with others in whatever the setting is, but I'm thinking particularly uh, today, Jeff giving me the opportunity to uh, share God's word with you. Uh, One of the blessings of that is that uh, you then have studied the scripture so much that every word of every song that has been selected, it just resonates all the more with you. And it helps me to appreciate all the more the work that David Buving, as well as the musicians that work with him, the work that they do so that everything carries a consistent message on any given day that we gather together. And that is a labor of love. It's a labor of worship. And it enhances our worship so that we can worship him all the more. But I know Jeff, others, I see uh, Nick, David, some here who have taught God's word from up front here before to realize we just are so enriched because we've come prepared with the study of God's word and then everything about the songs is just man it's hitting that very same message so thanks for that thanks for our 
readers also, and so as Anna's reading that, I know I'm just uh, all the more enriched by what God's Word has to say because I've had the privilege of uh, spending some past time, uh, or some uh, time this past week and just kind of preparing for today. But don't be alarmed by all the uh, warnings about staying awake, at least as it relates to my message. We will heed those in another context, as we'll see in just a moment. Well, everybody except Sam had signed up for the company pension plan that called for a small employee contribution. Unfortunately, that plan could not be implemented unless there was 100% employee participation. But because Sam was so convinced that the plan was never going to truly pay off, no amount of pleading by his coworkers or his boss could get him to budge. Finally, the company president called Sam into his office. And he said, Sam, here's a copy of the new pension plan, and here is a pen. Sam, I want you to sign this plan. He said, I'm sorry it's come to this, but unless you sign the plan, you are fired effective immediately. Without hesitation, Sam signed the papers. The president then asked Sam, would you mind telling me why you weren't willing to sign the papers earlier? Well, sir, Sam said, nobody explained it to me quite so clearly before. As you think about it, a clear explanation of the facts sometimes provides greater motivation to do something. And our study of Mark's gospel has brought us to chapter 13, which is Christ's clear explanation of the facts of what would be taking place in the world prior to what is referred to as his second coming. His explanation was uh, designed to motivate his listeners, not to sign some pension papers, but to be as prepared as they could possibly be for his return to earth when he came in undiminished glory and righteousness, a day that is still ahead of us. And so last week, Pastor Jeff guided us in our study of verses 1 through 23 of Mark 13, in which our Lord instructed his disciples about what is referred to as the tribulation, a time of unparalleled destruction and universal devastation in which the full wrath of God is going to be unleashed across the earth in the months prior to Christ's return. So fortunately for me, Jeff had to talk about the most catastrophic most horrific time period in history, and I get to come in the following week and talk about Christ's spectacular return in glory. So, Jeff, thanks for doing the dirty work. You have exhibited a true servant spirit, and I appreciate it, and I'm glad that's behind us. And now we move to the second coming and how we can prepare for our Lord's return. Without doubt, one of the most significant revelations in the Bible is that the world as we know it will end with the victorious return of Jesus Christ to earth one day and it will be in literal bodily and visible form. Believers of all ages have looked forward with 
eager and earnest anticipation to that day when Christ will defeat his enemies and will set up his kingdom. In fact, the Apostle Paul refers to believers in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 as those who have, remember the phrase, loved his appearing. To be a believer, we, if we understand what the Bible has to say about the second coming, we will love his appearing. We will long for that. We will eagerly anticipate it. And so having just told his disciples that the earth's final days will be characterized by unrestrained immorality, unparalleled devastation, unrelenting violence, and unsurpassed tragedy, Christ then describes in verses 24 through 27, as Anna read it a moment ago, he describes the ultimate cataclysmic chaos that is going to prevail and characterize and dominate the earth preceding his coming in judgment. And it's in the midst of this cosmological confusion that there comes a most hope-inspiring statement that I want to draw your attention to in that text. It is verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And so it is that joined by Christians of all the ages of history, everyone belonging to the Lord that is on the earth at that time that he's referring to will be gathered together with Jesus Christ and will enter into the perpetual joy of his personal presence and his kingdom. That's a pretty spectacular announcement that is being made in verse 27. Jesus then uses a very simple illustration about a fig tree to emphasize that which is the appropriate response to the fact that he is coming. And uh, an appropriate response to the fact he has warned of what will be taking place and that he will come immediately following that. And so the point of verses 28 through 30 is this. In the same way that we can predict the coming of summer, and are we not looking forward to being able to predict the coming of summer here pretty soon? Uh, this time of the year, we are just itching for that. But in the same way we could do that, as we view the tree leaves that have appeared in the springtime, so the future generation who will witness these events, these signs that Christ has predicted that future generation that will witness those events occurring in rapid-fire succession, they will know that his return is very near. Our Lord then emphasized the absolute authority and dependability of his prophetic promise by telling his disciples that even though heaven and earth will pass away, his statements on this subject will not pass away. Now, this is, is critically important, too, because each of us uh, would likely, we hear all of these amazing statements of amazing events that are going to be taking place. We're not sure, can we really believe those? Should we really believe those? And Jesus gives his listeners every good reason 
to believe it. And so in his statement in verse 31, a, a remarkable statement about heaven and earth will pass away. My words, what I've just told you about this, will not pass away. There are essentially two very fundamental, briefly on this, two fundamental truths that are stated there. One is that our world is temporary. You say, well, I'm not sure that's good. The more you think about what's taking place in the world, read current events more frequently, then that's actually some good news that our world is temporary. But even more importantly, the second truth that is declared there is God's word is infallible. So what he has said, what he has proclaimed about those events, those birth pangs, those signs that will be taking place prior to his return to this earth, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. What he said about his return and the end of the age, that is unalterable truth. It will happen is exactly as he said it would happen because his words will not falter. His words will not fail. It'll happen as he has said it. We're moving through the scripture quickly. You're encouraged by that, I trust. Um, hopefully not so quickly that you're not absorbing the import of what our Lord has said. But please observe with me that four times in the final verses, and you, you picked up on this as Anna was reading those uh, final five verses of our text today, Verses, so verses 33, 34, 35, we skip over to 37. Four times we hear this command, and, and Jesus is declaring to the people in that generation who are alive at the time these events are occurring, should be on guard, stay awake, be alert, keep on the alert, because his return is nearly upon them. Now, verse 32, let me draw your attention there just a moment. Anna read it. Look at it as I make this comment. Though that coming of Jesus Christ will be preceded by visible signs, verse 32 is letting us know that the exact moment of the second coming will not be revealed by God to anyone. That's for God alone to know. We can debate whether he should let us know or not, He's made the choice not to. And so as a result of the fact that his second coming will not be revealed, yes, there will be a series of events, signs, birth pains, birth pangs that are happening prior to, we have this warning, stay awake, be on alert, be vigilant, be ever watchful, because he is coming again, and so essentially like dutiful doorkeepers, the people are instructed to keep on the watch so that they can be prepared to welcome their master at the moment of his return. That was a brief explanation, brief explanation of the text, and so we're moving now to the application. Jesus has made it very clear that we will not know when he is going to return. On the other hand, he has made it abundantly clear what we should be doing while we are waiting for that return. And in reality, that is the far more important emphasis to give. So Jesus commands us to be continually watchful, vigilant, alert, ready. And I'm aware of three primary ways. There may be more. You're limited by whoever is the one giving the 
message that day. But uh, I am aware of three different ways in which that expectancy, the expectancy of his return, can properly prepare us for Christ's return. And first is this. An expectant attitude will change our perspective. It'll change our perspective. Think about that for a moment. When we live in the expectation of Christ's return, there is going to be, hopefully, a tendency for our emphasis to shift away from that which is temporal to that which is eternal. We loosen our grip on the things of this world that capture our attention and call forth our our devotion because we realize those things aren't really going to last, are they? Now, realize, I'm talking about a process here. It's not like I would expect of myself nor you that because we discuss these things today and we've learned more about the second coming of Christ, we've learned how to be prepared for his return, that each of us is going to make these radical changes in every detail of our lives. We're talking about a process, but let's make sure we're in that process, that we're moving in that direction. We're loosening our grip on the things that will not matter for eternity, but seem so appealing, so attractive, and so fulfilling now, but they're fulfilling only for a season. As our perspective changes as a result of our expectancy about Christ's return, Another thing is we do not become distracted by worldly attractions or its measures of success because they cannot compare to the glory that awaits us when our Lord returns. And although in the midst of trials we hurt, we suffer, we grieve, we know the reality of pain, and sometimes that's grieving very deeply and hurting very deeply. But in the midst of those trials, we do not despair. We do not lose heart because we know that those trials are temporary and that they are under the control of our eternally, completely sovereign God. The second, an expected attitude will change our behavior. Do you realize that almost without exception, when the second coming of Christ is mentioned in the New Testament, it is followed by an exhortation to godly behavior, to a life that is yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ, a life that honors him. This makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because when we get hold of the fact and really begin to understand that at any moment we may stand in God's holy presence and give an account for our lives and the way that we've lived them, we become more eager to speak and to act in ways that reflect his character and call people to his holiness. Also, when we're mindful that our Lord could return at any moment, we realize we may not have tomorrow to get serious about this surrender thing. We may not have tomorrow to really begin a pattern of obedience to him and to live a life without compromise. That tomorrow may not come. Third, an expectant attitude will change 
our mindset, our mindset. Let me tell you the direction I want to go with that. The more that we grasp of the reality that Jesus Christ is coming again, the greater will be our compassion and our concern for people who are without Jesus Christ. Because we will realize that based on the scriptures that we believe, they are living in a very perilous condition of waiting for, they may not think they're waiting for that, but the reality is what is waiting for them is God's impending judgment upon their sin. That starts to work on us as well it should, and we begin to change our mindset. Being prepared for Christ's return, that includes the realization that we may not have as long as we think to tell that neighbor, that person that we work out by uh, in the gym, uh, that, that co-worker, that friend at school, we may not have as long as we think to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ, his provision for their sin, his desire to forgive them and bring them into a personal relationship with him. Not only that, they may not have as long as we might think to hear the life-giving words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words... The realization that our Lord may return at any moment should change our mindset as followers of Jesus Christ from indifference or inaction toward those that we know that are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It'll shift from that indifference or that inaction to firmly embracing the fact that before our Lord ascended to heaven, his final instruction his marching order, his main business for us that we are to be about until he returns is sharing his offer of salvation with all people everywhere. That's the mission of his church. That doesn't mean each of us goes to all people everywhere, but we invest our lives so that that is happening to the greatest extent we can possibly do. And that's why we come together as a church family, so that we can have that combined effort and join with other church families across our land in making sure the gospel is reaching every distant point of this earth, but also next door, the house behind us, and uh, to members of that club that we belong to. I take some encouragement from this. I God's Word is heavy a lot of the times. Take encouragement where we can, right? Don't need to turn there, but let me direct your attention to Acts chapter 8 and the story of Philip's revival. It provides a window through which we can see what can actually happen in real time with real people like us as we engage together in the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. Um, as a result of Philip's ministry, we are told in verse 8 of Acts 8 that there was much joy in the city. Hold on to that thought. There was much joy in the city as a result of Philip and other believers' efforts there. Then we get to Acts chapter 9. We read about a, a dear servant of the Lord by the name of Tabitha. She would make coats 
for people in the community that didn't have coats. And we learn from Acts 9, verses 36 through 39, that when Tabitha died, a lot of people from that community gathered together at her bedside and wept. What compelling examples of what God does through ordinary, obedient followers when they are willing to bless those around them and guide those around them to Jesus Christ. That's where Pastor Jeff and our staff and our elders increasingly want to lead Bethany. We desire that there be much joy in our community because of Bethany Church and the people of Bethany Church. We desire to reach a point that if we were to die as a church, run with the analogy for a moment, please, but if we were to die as a church, that there would be numerous people from the community that would gather together and weep. As opposed to saying, I won't make any difference. Nothing's going to change. Who were they? What, what were they supposed to be doing? Isn't this amazing? The making, now, if I was to make a coat, then I'd say, this is an incredibly difficult project. But there are some of you that, for whom that would not be all that difficult of a thing. But so Tabitha made coats, gave them to the community. Philip and other believers just loved on people, shared Christ with them in the community. There was much joy in the city, but there was grief when somebody who had served the community so well had died. Wouldn't you agree with me that the ultimate measure of our ministry as Bethany Church is not going to be how many people we are eventually able to cram into this building? And we are working on that because we want there to be seat a seat for everybody who wants to come. And I was asking Leslie this morning, this feels like this is closer together. So, yes, we are jamming things together. If you didn't have as much leg room today, it's for the glory of God and the cause of Christ, right? But the ultimate measure is not how many people we can jam in here. The ultimate measure of our lives as Bethany Church in our obedience to Jesus Christ is what we do when we leave this building. Boy, Philip, Tabitha, they had it going. Last year when we adopted a new constitution that included accepting as our mission statement, helping people follow Jesus. And thank you for doing that. You guys were amazing through that process. Lots of buy-in. Helping people follow Jesus. We were acknowledging the priority that our Lord himself had placed on growing and mobilizing disciples to be about his mission. After all, you can't come away from the reading of Scripture and contend anything other than the fact that, you know what, our God is ascending God. And so we have this one statement in your notes. Nearly every time he speaks to someone in Scripture, he's sending them on a mission. Not every time, nearly every time he is sending them on a mission. With that in mind, I'm going to, my major request for you today, would you be willing 
to pray with fervency and with consistency that God would help us view our neighborhoods, our, our workplaces, our workout centers, uh, our schools, our gathering, whatever gathering places there are in town, public spaces that we interact with people, that God would help us to view those as settings in which we can concretely demonstrate His love and His grace through selfless demonstrations of love, through helpful acts of service. That would be an immense thing for us to agree together to pray about. After all, I am convinced of this, and I think I could uh, find enough scriptural support to convince you as well that the most effective way for us to engage in our community, in the lives of people in our community, in such a way that there really is spiritual influence, there really is kingdom impact, that the way that that can most effectively happen is discerning ways that we can develop relationships outside of this building and be useful in the lives of the people that we interact with. Please make no mistake about this. God's worldwide mission is every believer's primary responsibility until Jesus comes. Every follower, each of us, is sent. Each of us is commanded to go. I heard this phrase recently, gospel possession requires gospel proclamation. Gospel possession, I got it, requires gospel proclamation. That leads right into that next slide. The question is not if we are sent, only how and where. That we are sent, folks, already declared in Scripture, the how and where, that will be revealed by God's Spirit. I want to say this. I absolutely treasure the fact that when Jesus passed the mission baton to his followers, his plan centered on people like us. Just ordinary people. Common, run-of-the-mill folks who were spirit-strengthened, and as a result, they changed their communities and their world with his power rather than their talent. It's always more about his power than our talent. Is it not incredible that ordinary people like us, people with problems, people with faults, people with stubborn habits, people with all kinds of weaknesses, People who attend a driving class on a Saturday up at Multnomah University yesterday because I recently was going too fast over Morrison Bridge. Very ordinary people. It was good. I knew I had to speak today, so I got to be spoken to yesterday. God uses very ordinary people uh, because to fulfill his mission, because it's not about our ability to do things for God. It's about his ability to do things through us. Please be assured of this. God has no interest in making you or me or you or you or you, none of us. He, he's not interested in making us gospel reservoirs. He is interested in making each of us gospel rivers. We can do that. That takes us to yet another slide. 
Where is that slide? Where am I in my notes? I think I'm about to find it. Yes. One Christian leader put it this way. Compelling statement, isn't it? That every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. It's for each of us. We don't have any spiritual Navy SEALs to say, you guys go do the work. No, we all get to be included. Well, before Pastor Jeff leads us this morning in communion, there is a final truth that I absolutely feel must be highlighted, and you see that there is still more to come there. Um, and, and that is to say that, that by far the most important readiness or preparedness for Christ's coming is spiritual preparedness. It's also the same for sharing in this meal together. The most important preparation is spiritual preparedness. Please do not be deceived this morning, folks. Neither religious activity nor behavioral reform can possibly prepare you to meet Jesus Christ. Can't prepare you for his return. Even if you could pull off a life from here forward of, of perfect obedience, living a, some sinless life from this day forward, what are you going to do about all of your past sin, all that past failure that characterizes each of us? You still face God's judgment for that. And so we have this final slide that true readiness for Christ's return must include an assurance that your past guilt is forgiven and that your present standing before God is secure. Very briefly on each of those two, and Jeff will guide us from there. The first statement, each of us needs the assurance that our past guilt is truly forgiven. Scripture teaches that one mere failure to meet the absolutely perfect standard of his law is enough to condemn us eternally. But Jesus, right? Thankfully, Christ shed his own innocent blood to purchase full pardon and full forgiveness from God for you and me. We need to have the assurance that our past guilt is forgiven, but we also need assurance that our present standing before God is secure. Not only did Christ's sacrifice on our behalf provide forgiveness of our sin, it also provides a righteous standing before God. I encourage you to think of it this way. If the extent of Christ's saving work was that all of your sin was forgiven and the slate is wiped clean, all that means is you would have a blank slate. You know what? A blank slate isn't going to be enough. Thankfully, believers in Jesus Christ receive much more than a blank slate. In addition to that, Scripture tells us that believers have Christ's perfect standing with God. We have his perfect righteousness, right standing, right position with God. That becomes ours. That is credited to our account the moment we gently trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior for our sin. 
that righteousness is the only ground on which we can stand with confidence before God. It is the sole hope of our salvation. And so as Jeff is about to come, we could say this, and, and we would want to make no mistake about it whatsoever. The most important preparation for Christ's coming again, the most important preparation for this meal is turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for our salvation. And you have this assurance. When that decision is made, and that's why so many of us, it is a celebration today. It's a sober celebration because we realize the price that this took. But we then realize the truth and the reality of Scripture that from that moment forward, that I trusted Jesus Christ alone as my Savior and Lord. My sin was forgiven. I, I've been spared from God's judgment against that sin. And I'm reconciled to Him for all of eternity. Thank you. Well, as our servers come forward at this time to prepare and our worship team as well, if you think about that and the reality of